Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Leland Brown, one of the associate pastors here at East Cooper. It is a joy to be here. Um, if you would grab your Bibles, if you have one, and go to John 12. We'll be in verses 20 to 26. It's also printed in your bulletin. I do relish uh, any opportunities to share the word with you all. They also, however, bring out a lot of my deep, hidden anxieties. I had a dream last night that I could not find the sanctuary, showed up 30 minutes late in an undershirt without a Bible. So it is very good to be here on time, fully dressed with my Bible. Um, Well, speaking of anxiety, I don't know if you've ever had a little bit of anxiety about missing out on something great. Uh, Maybe there's been um, a group of people and they just have something that you want or something really big or someone really big that you just, you just want in and you're worried about missing out on it. That's actually uh, one thing going on in our passage this morning. Uh, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem in something we call the triumphal entry celebrated on Palm Sunday. Uh, the crowds welcome him. Uh, he comes in on a donkey fulfilling prophecy. And uh, if you are a, uh, acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, you know this is the Messiah. And what he's about to do, at least according to the expectations of the day, is to bring about his kingdom in power. That this guy is going to conquer the nations. He's going to rule in glory and bring prosperity and peace to his people. And there were some people who witnessed this triumphal entry, and they were a little afraid that they were going to miss out. And so these are the Greeks we see in our first verse And they come to Jesus and ask him how they can get in on this kingdom. And uh, we'll see the answer here in just a moment. So John 12, verses 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Lord, we just just sung that all we have is Christ. You are our portion in our life, and that, Lord, we would just, that our ransom lives would be used however you choose. Um, It is one thing to sing it, Lord. I just pray that as we uh, hear from this passage that you would do that in our souls, that you would become more precious to us, and that we would become more willing to be used however you see fit. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
a pile of money, a beautiful girl, and a bright future ruined his life. His name is Pip. He's the main character of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, one of my favorite novels. It's set in uh, 19th century England. Pip grows up an orphan boy. He's raised by his sister and her husband, Joe. Joe's this very simple guy. He's a blacksmith, but he and Pip are like best friends. He's this great father figure. Uh, Biddy, their house servant, lives with them. And as uh, Pip grows up, uh, it becomes evident that Biddy loves him and would marry him and that Joe would take him on as an apprentice. And Pip is looking into the future at 60 years, living in a small town, being a blacksmith with not a lot of excitement. Then a few things happen. Pip meets this super gorgeous, super rich, super arrogant girl who he has no chance with. But then an unnamed sponsor gives him a pile of money so that he can go to London, go to the big city, get an education, make something of himself, um, and maybe get the girl. It's the British version of the American dream. Well, Pip goes, and uh, the money and the opportunity actually ruin his character. The main thing that's ruined in Pip is he is now ashamed of Joe and Biddy and these simple country folk. In fact, even when his sister dies, he almost doesn't go to the funeral because he's so ashamed of them. Things don't turn out so great for Pip's new rich life. He has this sort of prodigal son moment where he, he comes to his senses and he realizes that what he really wants is Biddy by his side and a simple life. And so the romantic comedy plot begins, right? If it was a Hallmark movie, it would start snowing, the music would be in the background. Pip decides he's going to go home and declare his undying love for Biddy. He's going to marry her, and he's going to be by Joe's and her side for the rest of his life. And he walks in, and the first thing he notices is that Joe and Biddy are really dressed up. And Biddy's got a ring on her finger. It turns out he came home on their wedding day. He had it right there in front of him, his whole for years, and he missed out. And now I hope you feel bad for Pip, I felt bad for him. But what I would like to suggest this morning is that you are Pip. You're the one. John 12 tells you what the truly good life is. It's available to you this morning, and yet it's probably not very attractive to you. And if you're not careful, all the good opportunities and the fun things that you could be doing here in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina will distract you, and you will miss it. If you don't believe me, uh, the first thing our passage tells us is that everyone wants the good life and everyone gets it wrong. Uh, notice uh, verse 20. We see some outsiders who want the good life. Uh, notice that scriptures say that among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These were kind of a unique class of people in the first century. They were God-fearing Greeks. So they weren't ethnically Jewish. They weren't pagans. They were Greeks outside of the ethnic people of Israel who worshiped the God of Israel, believed the prophets, and were hoping for God's kingdom. 
And so they come to worship the feast and they see this incredible event. The Messiah has come. They probably know the scriptures. They, they think they know what's about to happen, that he's about to rule and reign and bring prosperity and peace and security to God's people. And they want in. They want the good life. They think Jesus can give it to them. And then we see some insiders, the disciples, who have no idea what to do with the outsiders because their vision for the good life does not include the outsiders. Notice how strange verses 21 and 22 are. Uh, Philip, who was a, this wonderful evangelist earlier in John, these people come to him and say, let us see Jesus. And he's like, I don't know. Goes to Andrew. Andrew's like, I don't know either. They abandon them, go to Jesus. It's like they're uh, Jesus' bouncers now. You know, the whole gospel the whole, all these stories, he's been ministering to Gentiles, and all of a sudden, Philip and Andrew were like, no. I think it's because the Messiah's entered Jerusalem, and the good life is only for Philip and Andrew's people. Their picture of the good life is a little bit um, ethnocentric, if you will. But notice, they want the good life too. In other gospels, we hear stories of them coming to Jesus right before the triumphal entry and asking if they can sit at the right hand of his glory. And what they're saying is, Jesus, can I be your prime minister? Like in a week when you win. Can I have the, left, the west wing of the palace? Everybody in this text wants the peace, prosperity, security, what we would call the good life. And they think Jesus can give it to them. Can you feel it today? how those things beckon to you, how you long for rest, for health, for fulfillment, to have your desires met, to see our nation prosper in the things that are truly prosperous. Whatever is in your head, when I talk about the good life, I can almost guarantee you that it is wrong Everyone in this passage thinks they know, and they don't. They want a crown. Jesus is going to a cross. They want security. He gets scorn. There's a particularly dangerous and very common version of the good life that a lot of us Christians are tempted to. Uh, I have it in your bulletin under point two, um, some G.G. Renee Hill, a pretty popular blogger, and she says this, a good life does not have to look like everyone thinks it should. Whatever feels right for you, whatever aligns your inside with your outside, that's what you should spend your time doing. I think this is probably the, the biggest message in 2021 America. Whatever brings you well-being on the inside, that makes you feel like you're fulfilling your gifts and calling, um, and don't think that just because you disagree with her that you're not tempted by this. Um, I think one thing we're tempted of as believers is to love Jesus, not sin in the really, really bad ways, and then do whatever we please. As long as we're within the bounds, right, of morality and not doing really bad stuff, just, just do you. Uh, sometimes we even cloak it in language like, you got to do what God's called you to. And sometimes when we say that, what we mean is whatever aligns your inside with your outside. 
second part of our text says almost the opposite of that statement. It says the good life only comes through death. You don't align your outside with your inside. You die to your inside. Two deaths have to happen for anyone to have the good life. The first is our Lord's and the second is ours. Let's see it. Notice in verse uh, 23, the disciples ask Jesus if Gentiles are allowed to see him. And Jesus' response to them is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In the Gospel of John, the hour is the hour of Jesus' death and crucifixion. The whole gospel has been pointing towards this hour. In John 2, Jesus didn't want to do a public miracle because it wasn't his hour yet. In John 6, his enemies are trying to kill him, but they can't because his hour hasn't come. But now the hour is here, the hour for him to suffer and be crucified, be rejected and be killed. And Jesus says that that is the hour of his glory. Notice the tension here. Uh, God being glorified is his beauty and his power and his majesty being seen for what it is. And Jesus says that happens on the cross. That the good life for Jesus was the crucified life. Notice uh, death and glory go together in the gospel. Defeat and triumph shame and victory. They are one in the cross. How can that be? Jesus answers that question at the end of, in verse 24. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus gives an illustration to help us understand how death and glory could go together in him. And it's a, of a seed going down to the earth and dying. The, the idea here is that uh, plants make seeds. In first century culture, wheat was a very common crop. They make grains. And uh, theoretically, grains and seeds have a great shelf life. They could hang out in the light, uh, not have anything bad happen to them for a very long time. But they remain alone. <laughs> they don't fulfill their God-given purpose. If anyone's going to eat... If life is going to continue, if they're going to fulfill their God-given purpose, they have to go down into the earth, be consumed, be buried, be put in the dark, and die. Did you know that a seed primarily consists of food for the new plant? It literally has to be consumed for new life to happen. And I think what's important for us to understand what the Lord is getting at in this picture of his life, and we'll see in a moment in ours, is the perspective of the seed. We like to be the farmer, right? We like to like have the bird's eye view, uh, put the seed in the ground, we water it. That's even how we see the cross sometimes, about God's plan. But think about this from the seed's perspective. You get taken out of the light. You get buried under the suffocating earth. You're alone. You're in the dark. You're consumed. And Jesus said that this is what it was for him to go to the cross. He was put in the dark. He was left. He was buried. The Father turned his face away. He was consumed. His life was poured out. 
Why? For your abundant life. You are the fruit of Jesus' death. He went down to the earth and he died to bear the fruit of your life, of your eternity, of you with joy before God forever, of you saved from the wrath of God. In the gospel this morning, what the Lord Jesus is saying to each of us, if we will receive him, is quite simple. My life for yours. Me consumed, you fed. Me pushed in the dark, you brought in the light. Me, me cast aside, you brought in. Maybe uh, John Piper said it best. My abandoned life for your abundant life. I'm not sure where you are this morning, but you need to see a fresh the love of the Lord Jesus for you. He would do this for you, for your life. Think of him. You know, in eternity past, he looked through time, he saw you, he saw your sin, your rebellion against him, and he chose at the right time to become like a seed, go down to the earth and die, to lay his life down for you, for your life. And Maybe you're wondering this morning, like the outsiders, how do I get in on this? Um, whether you are an insider or outsider, the answer is very simple. You place your rest and your trust, um, your confidence onto the laid down life of the Lord Jesus. You think of yourself before God, you wonder how can I be accepted by God, get into his kingdom. You don't look to your works or your Christian heritage or how well you're doing this week, you look solely to the Son, to his life laid down for you, to him in your place. You trust him. You trust his work on your behalf. And believer, um, the cross of the Lord Jesus doesn't just get you the good life. In fact, seeing it and enjoying it is, is a part of the good life. The cross is Jesus' glory. Listen, listen to me. We are far too transactional when we think about the gospel. Jesus did this so I can have life. That is true. But in the cross itself, in the Son's laid down life, is the glory of God on display. And you were made for the glory of God. You were made to see it, to enjoy it, to relish it. So if you're wondering this morning, how am I going to be refreshed at rest? Get my needs met. It is in you seeing and enjoying and savoring the laid down life of the Lord Jesus. Come afresh. Whether you are an insider or an outsider, there is a part two to this good life. You have to die to follow Jesus. You have to die if you're going to have the good life. Jesus is not the only one who must become like a seed, go down to the earth, be buried in the dark alone to bear fruit. It is true of every life in this room. If you will have life, if you will have the good life, the first thing you must do after you rest upon Christ is to die. 
Notice uh, the first thing we have to do is die to our picture of the good life. Look at verse 25. Right after this statement about the seed, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates this life in this world will keep it for eternal life. When we think of love and hate, we often think in emotional terms. What the Lord is speaking of here is an ultimate preference. What you love here is what you ultimately prefer. What is most beautiful to you? What speaks the most to your affections? And what Jesus says is if you're going to follow him, the blessings of this life, the good, even righteous things that you can have in this life cannot be highest in your affections. And in fact, they, they have such a grip on you and I that if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to resolve to die to those things. We have to see them clearly, name them in our hearts, and lay them down. That's what this text requires of us. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that what is beautiful to us, we will conform our lives to. We have to name those things in our lives that draw us, that are most beautiful to us, that we long for and die to those things. Think back to your good life. Maybe it is as simple as just getting a break. Maybe it's you surrounded by your children and grandchildren and for the first time in history, everyone's getting along. Maybe it's restoration for your marriage, blessings on your children, health, Maybe it's this church thriving, functioning according to how you think it should function. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to die to those things. You cannot hold on to them. You can't, you can't say, I'm going to have Jesus and I'm going to have all the things that I want. That's not possible. The Lord excludes that from possibility here. That probably sounds maybe a little sharp or shocking to you. I think the reason is we talk a lot and it's very sensible for us to say we have to die to the bad things, to our sin. That's very true. If I'm angry, if I want to murder someone, I need to not do that. That's bad. I got to die to that. Um, But the Lord Jesus here, when people are wondering, how do I have the good life? The Lord adds to that. You don't just have to die to the bad stuff. You have to die to the good stuff. Because if you don't, there is no way you're going to follow him. There's an old uh, 18th century Baptist pastor named Samuel Pierce. Most people haven't heard of him. He was a really godly man. Uh, He was one of William Carey's best friends. And one of the men whose labor and whose work uh, kept Carey on the field through fundraising. Um, Anyways, Pierce was a pastor at a church in Great Britain, and a few years into Carey's uh, missionary labors, Pierce gets what appears to be the missionary call. Uh, he has this insatiable desire to join Carey on the field. I'm talking two o'clock in the morning, he's studying Bengalese. Like that's, like that's pretty serious, y'all. And um, he, his church isn't a super fan of him leaving, so he decides he's going to submit himself to the judgment of the Baptist Missionary Society that sent Carey. And he decides to fast and pray once a week for the month or two leading up to this decision. And he records a diary um, during that time on those days of fasting and prayer. And if you read his words, it's just clear. 
he was certain he should go. Absolutely certain it was God's will for his life. He cannot escape it. And he goes to the meeting with his best friends, and they look at him and say, Sam, we, uh, you're definitely qualified. We love your heart, but we need you to stay. You can't go. We're not going to send you. And Pierce not only lives the rest of his life raising funds for these friends who crushed his dreams, he also writes that day to his wife and says this, my dear Sarah, I am disappointed, but not dismayed. I ever wish to make my Savior's will my own. A month later, Pierce is on a ministry trip, probably raising funds for the BMS, and he gets notified that his daughter is at death's door. She's had a a fever for several weeks, and again, before Advil and hospitals, that's super serious. And so he writes this uh, to his wife when he hears, I feel for you. I long to know how our dear Louisa's pulse beats, I fear still feverish. We must not, however, suffer ourselves to be infected with a mental fever on this account. Is she ill? It is right. Is she very ill, dying? It is still right. Has she gone to join the heavenly choirs? It is all right, notwithstanding our repinings. That's just suffering longings for things to change. No, we will not repine. It is best she should go. It is best for her. We've got to allow that. It's best for us. Do we expect it? Oh, what poor, ungrateful, short-sighted worms we are. Let us submit, my Sarah, till we come to heaven. If we do not then see that it is best, let us then complain. I had a kid in the NICU about a year and a half ago, and so that letter is as shocking to me as it is to all you parents out there. But um, just notice, we see a man here who has joy when his dreams get crushed, and he has joy when his daughter is at death's door. How? He has died to all the natural good desires he has for blessings in this life. He has the good life on the inside, a love for his Lord, a desire to please him, the joy unspeakable and full of glory, the peace that surpasses understanding, not because he's a Superman, but because he's laid his life down. You can have that too, but you must do it now. Don't wait until you get home to resolve before God to lay your life down. You won't. It's a defense mechanism to say, hey, I've never heard this before. I'm going to take some time and process this and journal. No, no, no. Lay your life down now. Resolve before God right now that you are going to live not for the things of this life, but for him, that his life is yours, that he can do whatever he wishes with your ransomed life. Um, I believe this, this can happen in a moment can happen. Of course it happens through life as we walk with the Lord. And maybe you're wondering, what do I practically do with this right now? Like, what do, like, what do I actually do? Start here. Why don't you die to your Sunday afternoon plans? All of us have plans. I am getting in the car and going on vacation after this sermon. You, you can bet I've got lots of desires for what the week looks like. All of us have pressures, things that we wish would happen this week, stuff we're struggling with. Lay those down. 
Start by opening yourself up, not to what you want this week, but to whatever God has for you. So there's a last uh, part of our text um, that describes why we must die and what we must die for. Uh, so there's a reason. Just notice here, Jesus does not die just to die. God does not call us to lay our lives down just because we need to. He dies for a purpose here. Um, look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Here's the question. Where is Jesus in John 12? Jesus is laying his life down for people who are far from God. He is sacrificing. He's being consumed. He's being put in the dark for people who are far from God, people who don't know God. And he says here, if someone would serve me, he must follow me. Where? To the place of death for people who are far from God. That is the good life. You sacrificing, giving your possessions, your time, inconveniencing yourself, having that awkward conversation so that someone who's far from God has the chance at life. That's the good life, according to Jesus. It's right here. Where I am, there will my servant be. If you want to be where Jesus is, if you want to have his presence in your life, you have to be laying your life down for people who don't know Jesus. I was uh, converted through the ministry of campus outreach at this church about 12 or 13 years ago. Um, I literally am a child of this church. It's just such a joy to be here. But uh, instrumental in my story was uh, a baseball player named Oliver Marmel. We both played baseball at CFC. And um, Oliver was just a kind of a regular student athlete who had kind of caught the vision of campus outreach. And so uh, he pestered me about coming to Bible study and was the only upperclassman that was actually kind to any freshman. And he sat down with me one day and shared the bridge diagram with me as I made it as impossible for him as possible. Um, and over the course of my first semester at CFC, I was converted. And actually, there were two other freshmen on the baseball team converted at the same time. God was doing really, really cool things that year. But later, Ali shared with me what his what his daily life looked like, what an average day for him looked like. Uh, and here's, here's the basic picture. Like every other college athlete, he wakes up exhausted, drags himself out of bed, goes to classes for three or four hours, gets done with class, eats lunch, heads to the baseball, team, baseball field for three or four more hours, gets done with practice, heads to the weight room for another hour, and he arrives home, I don't know, it's dark outside. And what does he do? While his buddies are having bro time, or going on dates, or studying, which maybe he should have done, he opens the book of Romans and gets the CFC baseball roster out, and he reads Romans and prays for every person on the roster. That's what he did for a year. And when you think about the fact that he was a college student and the way we tend to see college as the best years of your life, Never get those years back or that time with peers. Think of all the things he could have been doing. 
And yet, Ollie misses out on some really fun time with his friends. And I get eternal life. Now he misses a couple of dates. And I get God in Christ forever. And listen, I, I hope that's beautiful to you. Because it can be your story too. Right, listen, we don't live in a context yet. We're following Jesus and laying our lives on for people far from God is going to cost us our lives. But it will always cost us our convenience and our sense of social propriety and our energy. And if we can lay down these, in the big picture, very small things, we can change people's eternities and participate in this one good life. There are lots of people far from God, and there are lots of ways we can lay our lives down for them. There are people who live thousands of miles away. We can leave and go to them. There are people who live across the street, and we can walk over and apologize that we don't even know their name and say, hey, let's hang out. We can bring those people into our homes through foster and adoption. The Lord doesn't, he doesn't specify how we must lay our lives down for people far from him. He just specifies that we must. There is freedom. Don't wait till it fits just right with your gifting. Today, lay your life down for a non-Christian. It might just start with prayer. But see this, have, have your affections changed here. This is the beautiful life. This is the good life. It's not you getting what you want and being comfortable. It's not having those desires fulfilled. The good life is a life laid down for people who are far from God. As we close, uh, it's important to note the Lord Jesus does not promise us immediate success in this. He doesn't promise us that we're going to see everything he's doing. Just, again, think about a seed. It spends a lot of time in the dark. It doesn't see. But there is something he promises us at the end of this text that I'd like to close with. Notice the last verse. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The, the reward for the one who takes up a little cost and a little pain now or maybe a lot of cost and a lot of pain, will be the honor of God the Father before the watching universe forever. Uh, as a preacher, you know, I always love encouraging feedback. Don't hear that as me asking you for it. My, my arrogance is plenty well established. Um, but as much as I love a good piece of feedback from one of you all, you guys will never compare to me getting feedback from my own father. There's something in every human heart that just longs for a father's approval. And, and this text, what this offers you is if you will lay your life down now, the father of everything, the father himself, God, before a watching world, at his judgment throne, forever, will honor you 
will affirm you. We'll say, hey, look, look at my servant. Look at how she laid her life down. Look at how he loved. Before all people, before the angels, you will be honored by God himself. And if you have any doubt that death now leads to glory forever, just look to our Lord Jesus. The book of Philippians, as we sung, says that he made himself nothing and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And therefore, that therefore, God has exalted him to the name above every name. That was Jesus' story. And if you will follow him, it will be yours too. The good life indeed. Let's pray. Lord, as we close, I... We just recognize that it is your work to change our affections and to change what is beautiful to us and to mold our hearts to love the things you love. Um, And I I just just plead um, that you would do that now in this place. I I just pray as as we've opened up this passage and hopefully have seen clearly what you're calling us to, you'd meet us. I, I pray you'd bring specific application what it looks like for me, for everyone here to lay our lives down for people far from God. Do that in us, I pray. Work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.